electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, and I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. On today's episode, hedge fund titan Stanley Druckenmiller. We've got to stop, guys. We're drunk. We're we're digging this deep hole. What are we doing here? The billionaire Wall Streeter is calling out U.S. debt. He says we're spending like drunken sailors, and we're digging deeper into our deficit hole. Most Republicans are going on about, or or at least the MAGA people, about wasting money in Ukraine. Are you crazy? Do you know how much we're going to have to spend if if Putin wins in Ukraine? Plus, the other stories of the morning, a ruling in real estate, how brokerages conspired to inflate commissions for agents. This is the only place where market forces don't come to bear. And the final lap of Sam Bankman-Fried's fraud trial. We're gauging the vibe in the courtroom after his cross-examination. There was nobody he'd won over in the room. It's Wednesday, November 1st, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one. Cue please. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin and it is decision day for the Fed. Well, no action is expected to be taken this time around. The markets are going to be paying very close attention to Chairman Powell's news conference later this afternoon. A federal jury uh, ruling uh, that could have huge implications across the country against National Association Realtors and uh, several real estate companies conspired, that's what they decided, uh, to artificially drive up commissions that home sellers pay to buyers' brokers. Now, defendants include Keller Williams, Berkshire Hathaway-owned Home Services of America, and others. They all say they're going to appeal that verdict, which calls for $1.8 billion in class action damages. The verdict followed a two-week trial in Kansas City where the case was drawing a lot of attention uh, for challenging some very widely used uh, real estate industry practices, shares of real estate stocks, all losing ground in a big way yesterday after that court decision. The whole idea that you're going to pay, the, you know, the commission on the buyer side, commission on the seller side. 3% each time. 3% each time, it's, it's 6% the only, total. Really, it's, it's the business that, and I've sold something and bought something recently, and, and it, it is it's kind of mind-boggling right. when you see the it's, numbers because it's, it's, the only, it's the only industry left. Like stocks. And there's no negotiation. Everything else is 1%. Or, everything else is basis yeah. points except this. It's still but 6%. But there's what no are you nego- doing for There's me? no right. negotiating. You can't say to the broker, you know, I'll do it. You know, will you do it for 1% and the other guy will do it for 3 There's none of that. No, and the reason the way, that there's... If you don't have your own broker, you still have to pay right. 6%. If and you come in, you don't have your own agent, they're saying, great, we'll take both. And agents. the reason for that is because of, of these agreements that they all have, these interlocking agreements. And this is in one state. So and think, it locks up the MLS, right. too. So think about what's going to happen around the country to this whole business. You can only hope, frankly. Yeah. And I'm sure there's lots of real estate agents who are watching us saying, you can't only hope because it's probably not going to be very good for them. But Joe's right. It's the only, they, the only industry. Where it, they it, haven't and seen they are classic when they come in here, you know, because housing prices are always going up when they come in here. And it reminds me of the movie in, in Wall Street. When he, remember when he buys that really nice place? Oh, my God. 
I, I mean, you better, you got to move on this quickly. Uh, a month later, he went to, so it's like, oh my God, I, there, there's no one. It's always the way they. Well, the question is like, what is a fair, you know, what is the right rate? What's the fair rate? Well, 6% doesn't seem like well, the right rate. It should be gonna, negotiated. When, it should when, be negotiated. There's going to be instances, I imagine. These are big numbers, and it's not on the down payment or anything. It's on the, on the equity. It's on what you're right. paying for the property. No, but there are going to be, there are going to be instances where there's like no, like where it's done in 10 seconds and no one has to do any work. And there's going to be instances where there's somebody who's going to have helped you for like five years yes. to try to get that property. The person who's worked for you for five years for free, they should probably get their 3%. Maybe they should even get more. More, potentially. But the right. issue, but I think that's the big issue, that it's all this sort of one, one, it should be, it should be a market, one number. Market-based, right? market-based situation, right? It's a, this is the only place where market forces don't come to bear. Yeah, if you're going to go after Amazon for, you know, for no transparency and earning too much, I mean, this is... Six percent. Nothing on, in the world on, is six percent. On what is most families' biggest uh, holding and investment that they that they have? None so. of us are real estate agents. Well, that's no, what I'm saying. Hard. We're always on the other side, so we obviously have that. Uh, well, that, but that's why I was also saying there are real estate agents that that do work for you. Like there are great real estate agents actually that do work oftentimes for years for free thinking that they're going to get the business. And then, so there is a, there's an argument to be made that in certain cases they should get paid. There's, there's even an argument to be made that if they move quickly and sell your house fast, that they should get paid a lot. If you're right. in a hurry to do it and I'm in a rush to do it, I will pay you X percent if you get me this amount of money. I will pay you X percent if you get me a lower point. I, I will pay you X amount if you can get rid of it in a month. You know, right. there, there should be incentives that you can build into it's it, also too. also a difference if you're a real estate agent in Cincinnati or if you're a real estate agent in Manhattan well, already or there's Palm a Beach, but, yeah, but do the math. That, but that was what I was going to say. People 3%. buy ten million dollar places constantly in Palm Beach. I mean, you work on that for a little while, you get sixty percent. I mean, you can make some serious. What is that? Is that six hundred thousand dollars? Cost cost of living is different too. I understand that, but you get a couple of those deals in a year. It's yeah. a pretty good business. And you're done. You know how many houses you got to sell out in Indiana? Nothing wrong with Indiana. No. You can get not a mansion for about. 600 grand. But that's the point. What's the point? Meaning if you can get a mansion for $600,000, the real estate agent who doesn't sell the $10 million homes in Palm Beach it's can still 6%. live in a mansion well, that's in Indiana. A, well, oh, can still live in a mansion. Yes. Still, I like it standardized. Like 1% across the board sounds good. Closing argument set to begin today in the uh, criminal trial of former FTX CEO Sam Bankman fried after the defense rested its case. Follows two days of cross-examination uh, by the prosecution of Bankman-Fried, who stumbled, it says here, uh, through questions over past tweets, balance sheets, text messages. Bankman-Fried face, uh, faces a potential life sentence if convicted on fraud trials uh, tied to the collapse uh, of crypto exchange FTX and sister hedge fund Alameda. I went down yesterday just to watch this final testimony on cross and then the recross. Were you in the, you could get in the room or, or you No, they, had, they have multiple rooms yeah, right, now. So you're you watching on this video. You're in a courtroom, but you're not in the courtroom with, uh, with him. But it was just interesting. To, I mean, first of all, it's a scene down there. But beyond that, the idea that, I mean, at least the room that I was in, he had not, there was nobody he had won over in the room. I mean, it was sort yeah, of yeah. in a, you almost sort of just felt it. Like it was just. Could you see the jury? Did they have cameras on them too? You could not see the jury. You could see him very, very well. Um, and in some cases, you should say, depending on where you were sitting, not well, because he, he's like a little person on a, uh, on a screen. But, you know. But you're sitting in a room full of journalists. 
A lot of journalists who are a lot of who are very very skeptical, but there was snickering and there was laughing, and you know if he doesn't, so it's gonna be it's be very interesting to see what the jury says. How long were you there? I don't like courts courtrooms. I just don't I did it because I don't like when I'm there because it's usually for a ticket. Bad memories. Usually, well, you go in at nine o'clock <laughs> right. and, and you watch the wheels of justice turn. No, like, uh, by it, the way, it, it, you want to talk about the wheels of justice turning in the most fast, possibly efficient, I'm sure that they would argue too efficient way. Yeah. I mean, I think there were some people who thought this happened too quickly. In this one. This case, first of all, think about it. And and Jake Clayton made the point. This case has been, it's less than a year that this whole thing's even happened. This thing's going to be over likely at the end of today. And we'll go to a jury. Wow. Think about how quickly that's happened. That is, that is fast. Yeah. But at the time, remember last year Perfect when people were like, fast. why is it taking so long? This looks you know, such an obvious situation. The ADD nation that we live in. But it's also, look, Sam Bankman-Fried didn't do himself any favors because he was so public and spoke so much that I think it made people feel like, okay, there's your case, figure it out. I, I think a lot of people felt like they knew more, more details about this and, than than most situations right. that you have at that point, too. It's like there's a lot of stuff that goes on. It's just, it's been my experience when I'm trying to get, you know, get the thing out of the way, and it takes like six hours watching traffic. But you didn't feel like he did himself any favors yesterday? He had a couple, there were some good answers, a bunch of good answers. It depends sort of how you, you what your disposition is towards him to begin with. I think if yeah. you come to it skeptical, which I think most people do, yeah. I think he doesn't do himself any favors. I think if you're in the middle, maybe, maybe there's a couple crazy. moments where you say, okay, but I don't know if it's enough to convince I, a jury. I, I, I would be very surprised if a jury did. I mean, there's, first of all, there's multiple uh, counts. Right. So, you know, right. it's, it's the idea that all, all that, you know, there's a juror on that that's going to say, no say no to everything. I think that's very hard. Let's do mesothelioma lawyers make. <laughs> Why, you want to go after them, too? I'm no, looking no, to see if I, I've heard they make a lot more than agents. 6%. Don't they get a third or something? Oh, yeah, I think you're right. So maybe you're talking class action lawyers? Yeah. I'm just waiting to see if they I've heard from any real estate agents. Sometimes, some, I mean, but, there's, but the thing they about... They get negotiated. Right? Yes, it's negotiated. Okay. That's the point. Right. Free market. Cheese will be next. Coming up next on Squawk Pod, hedge fund titan Stanley Druckenmiller. He made headlines this week at the Robinhood Investors Conference for slamming Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen for missing an opportunity to issue more long-dated Treasury bonds after the pandemic, when interest rates were near zero. Billionaire Druckenmiller is on our show today, explaining his reasoning and his perspective on debt and government spending. He says we're like drunken sailors. Treasury will have you believe that the maturity of the debt is 72 months. That conveniently leaves out $8 trillion that is funded overnight in the repo market. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration 
Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. Hedge fund uh, titan Stan Druckenmiller had some harsh words for Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Not issuing more long-dated treasuries when interest rates were low could be the biggest blunder in the history of the Treasury. You even said all the way back to Alexander Hamilton, who, who, who founded the New York Post. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can't get my head around that. Here now to talk more about, uh, about all this, Stanley Druckenmiller, chairman and CEO, of Duquesne Family Office. We just said you're liking bonds and welcome. Thanks for joining us in studio. I, I, I like the way you think about bonds. If, if we were inverted and we were at 100 basis points and the normal thing is the opposite way, 150 basis points, isn't that the biggest no-brainer in the world? Just to, just a short one and go along the other? That's kind of what you're doing, isn't it? I'm kind of disappointed, maybe it's my fault, that that statement has sort of taken over the more important narrative. No, we're going to get to that, it, but I, was, we, we, we introed you with that, so I wanted to say it, it, was, it, it was just a small piece <laughs> of a litany of stuff that's okay. been going on for 13 years. But um, I'd, rather, I'd rather get it in the sequence. Okay, we'll do of, it in, in that events. sequence, but we introed it with, with you liking it, bonds. I don't want people just to think that all of a sudden I, you're a I bond. know the media loves one-sentence stuff. <laughs> And maybe it was the most radioactive thing I said that day, but it's definitely was just one piece of a, of a big no, puzzle. The most radioactive thing you've said in recent uh, history is, is a 10-year flat stock market, which you said at Delivering Alpha. And we'll get to that, too. And it's, it's all actually starting to happen. We're watching it. Let's talk about Janet Yellen, and that's what we'll do. We, we, okay. Everyone and their brother uh, termed out except for the Treasury. I promise I'll- I promise I'll talk about it in a few minutes, if that's okay. <laughs> okay. Um, look, I'd like to go back to actually 2011. Okay, your college um, tour. Two things were going on at that time. A, I was going on a college tour, 15 universities, because I was terrified about the federal debt situation, particularly from 2025 to 2035. What I was looking at is entitlements had grown from 30% to over 60% of the budget, but more importantly, baby boomers like me were going to be turning 65 in the near future, and we were going to have a gray boom starting in 2020. So the payments to to that cohort were going to go up while workers shrunk. Um, And that gave sort of a dire forecast looking forward to the federal budget. Something else was going on at the same time. Chairman Bernanke at the Federal Reserve um, embarked upon QE2. If you've known my past, I was very much supportive in favor of QE1. It was a brilliant policy in an emergency state. QE2 was when they put QE in the tool cut, toolkit of monetary policy. I think it's been a disaster and it's led to fiscal recklessness. But if you remember when when Bernanke introduced it, he assured us when when the Fed balance sheet was 800 billion that this was a temporary measure. We weren't gonna monetize the debt. There's no way this would be increasing the balance sheet over the long term. 
Here we are 13 years later, the balance sheet has just shrunk from nine trillion to eight trillion, all right? So that to me, that monetary policy, which was then followed up by Janet Yellen as Fed chair, led to all kinds of fiscal recklessness because it checked the markets, um, it, it disallowed the markets check on fiscal behavior because when rates are zero, you think you can spend forever, and there was this MMT rage, the whole thing. The Mnuchin-Trump administration did something that had never been done before in history. They ran a full employment, trillion-dollar deficit, 5% of GDP. I love the way Trump uses the term rhino. Trump is the true rhino. Um, what kind of Republican administration would run a trillion dollar deficit in full employment. Okay, the next thing that happened is COVID. So when COVID happens, Trump, the Trump administration and the Fed go into high gear because we have another emergency like 08, 09, very different, but it's definitely an emergency. And to be frank with you, none of us knew, particularly me, whether we were going to black hole, what was going to happen. So the monetary and the fiscal response at that moment, like QE1, to me, was totally appropriate. Then the problem started. It became apparent very soon that we weren't going into a black hole. Worldwide supply chains were challenged. Um, the economy, we, we had a vaccine confirmation by October of that year. The economy to me was very clearly booming and this was gonna be more like we had a heart attack than we had cancer. So much so, if you remember, I came on your show right after I wrote an editorial in the journal in April of 21 to say, look, this monetary policy has got to change. This is crazy having zero rates and buying bond with what's going on. Um, the next thing that happened, Trump loses the election and Biden comes in, and now we have Bidenomics, okay? <laughs> so you take the Trump Mnuchin um, running full employment deficits, and Biden comes in, and we're still doing QE, and rates are still zero, and the economy's booming. So he doubles down, and the spending goes absolutely nuts. The two trillion deficit, or more. More. Yes. But again, with unemployment now, you know, under 4%. Um, under the Biden-Yellen administration, we've moved on now from Trump-Mnuchin to Biden-Yellen, um, they grow the federal deficit, the federal debt, $4.7 trillion, all right, while nominal GDP over that period, three years, grows 25%. It's like crazy. The economy's booming. We never had deficits of any kind of meaningful magnitude before Trump, and the spending is going on. Um, so you, you increase the deficit, the debt, 4.7 trillion. By the way, the Fed is monetizing in a way, and it's happening with GDP growing, I'm, I'm sorry, nominal GDP growing at 25%. All right. Now we're going to get to what you're salivating over, Joe. <laughs> I, I'm going to let you do it. I, you, you go in the sequence you want. I just, I just they introed it like that. Go ahead. <laughs> um, 
So at this point in 2021, in the second half, yes. all right, um, interest rates on the 10-year are like 1.1 on the 30-year, despite having been corrected in a tweet, and I was right to be corrected, it was not 70 basis points under the, um, under the Biden administration. It was, let's use one, 1.1, that's a more reasonable estimate. Um, by the way, the tweet that corrected me on the 30-year is incorrect. Um, it was trading at 166 as a low that period, and it was under 1.8 um, plenty of the time. The tweet that said that Treasury has never managed um, the maturity of the debt is also historically incorrect. As most of you probably know, the, Fed the Treasury Department suspended 30-year auctions in 2001 because term premium was high, the yield curve was steep, and they thought it was a, a useless use of money. So um, they were reinstated five years later. Um, one more thing on this issue. Um, in terms of the maturity of the debt, Treasury will have you believe, and the tweet used this, um, that the maturity of the debt is 72 months. That conveniently leaves out $8 trillion that is funded overnight in the repo market. That's the Fed how balance much? sheet. Right. How, how much overnight? $8 trillion. That's the Fed balance sheet. We at Duquesne use the consolidated government debt because we're looking at what, what the taxpayers are on the hook for. Right. In fact, when the Fed was making profits, they remitted the money to Treasury. So why you would leave out in terms of government debt, $8 trillion. Under that, the maturity of the debt, which was 63 months pre-COVID, is now 57 months. So the statement by the Treasury Department and others that the maturity of the debt yeah. has increased since, since pre-COVID is absolutely incorrect. Hmm. All right. That's you like want something well, no, you guys that, no, that's, that's like we created twelve million. It's the same kind well, of. I, uh, the, the question I have, putting aside the, the Yellen, I want to get to his answer though. Or whatever. But no, my one question is, do you believe that there would be a market for selling much longer term duration bonds, either price? many, either many more thirties or going up to fifties or hundreds? And the reason I ask is that was the implication I think of of what you were saying. I made a bunch of calls yesterday, and I know then I started reading all these studies and other things that folks inside the Treasury Department, including under Mnuchin, looked at doing that 50-year. In fact, I looked and found an interview that Mnuchin had done with me at a dealbook thing years ago where he wanted to do it, but then realized or thought that he couldn't do it because he didn't think that there was enough of a market and that it would actually uh, it, it would, it would sort of pervert the rest of the market otherwise. Um, currently, no. Um, I think that market would be very challenged in the current environment. Don't forget, um, pre-COVID, we were spending 20%, the federal government was 20% of GDP in spending. Right. It's now 25% of GDP. As outlined in the Wall Street Journal editorial this morning, my father told me, if you're in a hole, stop digging, Stan. All right. So I was actually happy to see when the announcement the support for Ukraine and Israel, $106 billion. 
and I was waiting to hear what the offset was going to be. Was it going to be entitlements? Where were the cuts going to be? And the next thing I knew, two days later, there was not only no offset, there was $56 trillion in emergency spending. I have kids. I have grandkids. Child care is not emergency spending. It's a priority that maybe should be on the table or not. But we are spending like drunken sailors. Okay, so... So do you agree with the House Republican plan, which puts forth spending for Israel but cuts it in the IRA through funding to the IRS? Is that an appropriate offset in your mind? Becky, I want to go after entitlements. It's, it's, right. where, it's where the money is. And You're not going to solve at, this. At some point it's going to happen. Castling. I'm going to give, I'm going to give you some numbers to tell you why Do that. It, yep. it's, it's going to happen no matter what. Anyway, getting back to the question, and then I really want to leave it, okay. because that's something that's in the past. We can't fix it. We missed a once-in-a-century opportunity, and let, let's just not Everybody else turned out. That's your point. Everybody you know uh, extended uh, mortgages. No, so, so, so here's the thing. Yesterday, uh, Steve Leisman said, I wanted Treasury to trade like a hedge fund, okay? I do not want Treasury to be trading and messing around the maturity of debt. All I'm saying is in 2021, Janet Yellen, okay, and, and Mnuchin before her, we spent $5 trillion. The idiots were lined up out there, wild to buy treasury debt at, at 180, 2%, whatever you want to call it. Let's not like play gotcha on this one, okay? Or 1, 1.1%, with nominal GDP growing at 10%. Right. 10%, okay? So look, it's not like it took Stan Druckenmiller to figure out that you're at, a, you're at like a 700-year low in interest rates. Okay, nominal GDP is growing 10%. Um, that the risk-reward of, pushing of issuing, higher, of issuing push, right. debt at 1.1% in the 10-year is off the charts. How off the charts was that risk-reward? 80% of American households. 80% refinance their mortgage. They lengthened the maturity, the average maturity of mortgage debt from 3.5 years to eight years. As a consequence, it's going to take five years for that maturity to go up, to get back to like four and a half. So it's, it's just right. huge in, 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 in terms of what they saved. The so I told my office just for fun, let's run a hypothetical. Let's give Mnuchin a pass because, like Bernanke, he, he canceled all notes issues, by the way, in late 2020, all right? Obviously, by hindsight, if you were a hedge fund, but, you know, I got to be honest, none of us knew what was going to happen in 2020. So let's give him a pass for not issuing any notes and just issuing bills. And for the same reason, let's give Janet Yellen a pass for the first half of 2021. Let's start the meter in July of 21. And then let's do the following. Let's, instead of going, going ahead with what we did, let's do the opposite of what Mnuchin did. And instead of issuing um, notes, all right, let's issue, I'm sorry. He, he, he suspended the issue of notes right. and only issued bills. So let's suspend the issue of bills and only do notes for a year. Hmm. All right? 
We took every auction where the 10-year was. And this is squishy, and I'll get why right. it's squishy. How much would the government have saved per year if they had done that relative to if they had to pay 5%, had to pay right. the rates we paid then and then 5% until now the end of the 10 years? Andrew, you want to guess? I don't even want a to A trillion try. two, <laughs> $120 billion a year. $120 billion a year. Um, it's squishy because if we had sold 10 years, okay, the maybe they go to price one, is two, one, be higher, three. Right. But you get the point. Um, it, was a, it was a missed opportunity. That's all I was saying. I don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> okay. I, I want to move forward. Uh, let's, uh, let's talk about something really positive, and that is where we're going to be in terms of debt to equity by 2000. Yeah, so, so, so here's the problem. So I was looking at entitlements back in 2011. Now we have a monster bigger than entitlements. It's called interest expense. Yep. And that interest expense is just incredible what happens. If you go um, and you assume interest rates are going to be 5% going forward, which one could argue is low, one could argue it's high. But that's where they are, so let's just say where we are. Right now, um, revenues to um, discretionary expenditures, that's all, that's everything but entitlements, are 41%. Okay? Yep. No, we In have 2033 at 5%, I'm sorry, interest expenses yep. for it. Is, in 2033, that number goes to 82% of all discretionary expenditures. In 2043, it goes to 144% of all discretionary expenditures. Anything but entitlements is off the table. Everything. Right. Defense, childcare, whatever you want to talk about. Um, even economic statistics, the whole thing. So the, the constant um, assertions by both parties, and I, I kind of blame Trump and Hillary for taking it off the table, that we're not going to cut entitlements. It's just, it's a lie. It's not going to happen. Because interest expense alone is going to do it for you. Is, is, is going to wipe out everything but entitlements. So t entitlements are going to get cut. That's for people at home, you can, you know, for people who are not as experienced in some of these things, it's like looking at credit card debt, which has now jumped the interest expense on that above 20 percent. Try to continue to be able to live your life um, with 20 percent interest if you're not stopping the credit card spending. Yeah. So far, Becky, because households turned out their mortgages, you pointed out it's the biggest asset of uh, households this morning, it really mitigated the effects, but the stuff you're talking about with the higher rates is going to start to bite. But, it, but it's interesting because it's not going to bite nearly as hard on the private sector as the public sector because corporations refinanced, um, the and public refinanced. Refinance, right? So here, here's, an, here's another unfun fact. Um, by 2030, interest expense for the, for the public is going to go up to 6% of disposable income. Okay, that's, that's not too bad, Becky. It's only up from like 4 now. Yeah. The government, which is a little less than 10, is going to go up to 30% because 
they didn't refinance and their, and their debt is so much bigger. That's a, it's very interesting, 30%, when I started Duquesne, rates were 12%, and that number was 15%. So we're gonna be at 30% at, at with five. rates materially lower than 12%, obviously. By when? 2030. 2030. 2030. It, it just, the chart is frightening, it just, it just goes like this. All this stuff is ahead of us because we didn't extend the maturity of our debt, so all this debt is gonna roll over in four or five years and you're gonna replace the 1% stuff with like 5%. One of the points that, that you made to me is that American exceptionalism has a lot to do with being the reserve currency, obviously, and, and I don't know whether you think that's going to continue, whether you think that's at risk. Uh, I don't know how long it would take um, uh, for the dollar. But also, we've led in every technological yeah. innovation that this country has. If, if this country is only, if all our capital is being used to service debt, we're not going to lead in anything that in the future. Well, I talked about this in a speech at USC last May, which has been memorialized in the international economy. It's a piece I wrote called The Coming Fiscal Horror Show. And the first thing I led with, unfortunately it was a little too prescient, was if you're spending all the money on this stuff, it squeezes out the ability to do things, defense spending, to, to take on your adversaries. It squeezes out money for people who want to do climate change. It squeezes out money for people who want to do disadvantaged. And then exactly, Joe, I pointed out that we led the world in PC revolution. We led the world in the internet. We led the world in companies that distributed the internet through the, these great products like Uber, other, other things. Um, we led the world in the cloud. We're leading the world in AI. If you look at Japan, I think we've all forgotten, unless you've read Chip Wars recently, they were a technological innovator like you would not believe through 1990. NVIDIA, nobody ever heard of, and I don't think it even been started yet, but America did not lead the world in semiconductors back in 1990. Once Japan went down this, went down this route that they've gone with, which basically the government spending take over, over everything, They've just been kind of a zombie place. And, and that's my great fear, is if you contributed more and more money to the public sector, and especially to interest rates, you crowd out the great innovative machine in this country. Look, I don't think, it'll, I don't think it's going to stop. It's just, it just worries me um, that, we, that, we that we lose that over time if we become zombie nation in terms of what we're funding and what we're not funding. Are you still, uh, in terms of a secular view of, of the stock market, are we only in year two of, of what could be flattish returns? Do you not want to talk about that? Anymore? No, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it because I'm a, I think it's important. But this, what we're talking about is one of the reasons I was so concerned, that and the fact that multiples were high. Look, we're at, we're at 20 times Duquesne's estimates for next year. Uh, for next year. Um, in a pre-QE world, 15 was about normal. When I got in the business, it was eight. Those were the days it was like going into a candy box. Um, I don't, 
it seems that bonds are adjusting to a post-QE world, but for some reason, equities haven't. So that's part of the problem, I think, given everything I just talked about and given the geopolitical situation everything else, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that we're not going to continue to sell at 20 times earnings over a long period of time. And then again, this crowding out of the government sector into the stock market and innovation. But look, I think they're going to be great companies and great stocks, like a lot to do, a stock picker's market. Um, a lot of people made money in the stock market in the 70s. It's just not going to be like surfing with a hurricane behind your back. You're going to have to really do work and figure out you know, which equities are great and which are not. Not, frankly, unlike what's happened in the last year. Stock market hadn't gone much of anywhere, but it's funny. Uh, the one thing I'm not very good at, but I got young partners who are very good at it on a relative basis to my other skill sets is picking stocks. And we've done fine in our shorts this year. We've done good in our longs. The problem is I didn't believe it, so I didn't have the, a big allocation <laughs> like I should have because I never imagined in, in some ways, being right on the bond market, which I was, and being right on earnings, which I was, made me completely wrong on the stock market. And I was completely wrong because if you had told me, and it happened, that rates were going to be where they are now January 1st, and earnings would be flat, and you told me the S&P was up, what is it, up 12 or 13%? I mean, that's just, that's not part of my process. So yeah, I, Joe, I, I, I still have a long-term forecast. By the way, I've been wrong on a lot of things, and you know, ten-year forecasts, are, you know, they are what they are. But that's our that's our working assumption. But it's also a working assumption that with all the innovation going on and all the disruption, it's going to be a stock picker's market, and you're going to be able to make money in stocks. But is there any way around monetizing these debt levels? Is there any way inflation is not here to stay? Yeah, I, yeah, we could have a... Um, long term? Look, I don't have to worry about the long term <laughs> in my day job, but, <laughs> right. but I will say this. We could have an event. I don't know whether, hopefully it's not a, 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 a war of major powers that bring us together and you get sacrificial behavior like we got after the Depression in the World War II. We could have a financial crisis. Um, due to everything I've been talking about. And finally, my generation, I think Paul Jones made the point, we've given nothing. We've given nothing. And now we want to screw our grandchildren. Finally, we get the memo. So no, I'm not, I'm not that pessimistic. And I'll say the other thing I'm optimistic about. Um, Jerome, the election? No, Jerome <laughs> Powell normalizing interest rates. Yeah. We now have a hurdle rate for investment in this country. So I think the allocation of capital, ironically, if we don't go to the, you know, the zombie route and if we don't continue the drunken set, ironically, I think it could, be, it could be a force for good. Because instead of funding a bunch of nonsense and bubble stuff, the, the capital gets more properly allocated. So look, I'm open-minded to a really bad outcome, and I'm open-minded to a decent outcome. 
But we need to I'm get just, in touch. We, we look, need to cut I, in touch. I, I, I'm here today not to talk about Janet Yellen. I'm but, here today, guns and butter this morning. I could have written it. By the way, I didn't. Um, we've got to stop, guys. We're drunk. We're, we're digging this deep hole. What are we doing here? So what, what's more important, that we come up with aid for Israel, Ukraine, and the rest, or that if it's not offset, do you think we shouldn't spend it? If it's not offset properly? No, no, we, we have to spend it, Becky, because if we don't spend it, if Russia wins, okay, we're going to be spending so much more um, down the road. I hate the DeSantis argument where he's going on and on about um, defense and, and Ukraine, and most Republicans are going on about or, or at least the MAGA people about wasting money in Ukraine. Are you crazy? Do you know how much we're going to have to spend if, if Putin wins in Ukraine? It's madness. So in terms of uh, the approaching entitlements, how would, would, if Stan and Miller were king for the day, how would you do it? That's about how long I'd be king because it, <laughs> it will take a one-term president to do what I'm talking about. Um, this generation has, has got to take a cut. And everybody says, oh my God, how can you do that? I said, well, right now current seniors are going to get 100 cents on the dollar. Future seniors might get 5 or 10 cents on the dollar. Is it not unreasonable for us to go to 85 or 90 right. cents on the dollar? But how would you, I guess I'm saying, how would you do that? Meaning, would, would you push out? This, is, this isn't I just would, a social I, security I, story. I, this is, I mean, and by the way, you, I think you and I agree. Well, that does figure our grandchildren more. I, I'm okay with it for them, you know, for the spending. No, I would, I would, I would cut, I would cut, not just, the first thing you should do, the first no-brainer is freeze the colas. We had an elegant opportunity here with social security and the payment went up 9.8% in the, in the big inflation year. Right. Um, no, I would, I would do stuff that would get you thrown out of office, but I would do it. We will, uh, the only, you, this happens like once every year or two when it has to happen. So we'll look back on all these things in a year or two. Can we do that? I'm, I'm booking you a year or two from now. Can, can I, if, if we're both still around, can, we, can, can you come back and we'll revisit? I can't uh, make any things. promises on that. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. I hope I'm not here because I only seem to get here when something ignites me. Last week it was the $55 billion in emergency spending on top, and then Secretary Yellen saying the preposterous statement that interest rates were not up because of, of, the, of the debt. They were up because the economy was good. I must have gotten awfully lucky because I made a lot of money this year betting on bonds going down because of the debt. It had nothing to do with the economy. If anything, I was wrong on the economy. Right, and it still happened. Well, if you'll come on whenever you're triggered, maybe I'll book you for next week because I'm sure there'll be yeah. something. Uh... You just take care of that lovely dog. Forget about me. I'm, okay? I'm, I'm going to. I'm going to have to visit the, the, the loan officer to do that, that operation. Stan, thank you. Uh, for, for thank you. A pleasure to see, to see you guys you. again, particularly in person. Yeah. Always. Good to see you, Stan. Enjoyed it. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
That's the podcast for today. Thank you for tuning in. If you liked this episode, scroll down a little bit. Check out the other interviews on our podcast that you might have missed, like a conversation about AI with Black Eyed Peas' Will I Am and the inventor of Segway, or a conversation about Israel with former WeWork CEO Adam Newman while he was in Saudi Arabia. And make sure you hit that follow button so whoever we interview next will land right in your feed automatically. Our three-hour live TV broadcast, Squawk Box, is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC starting at 6 to catch them. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. FedEx.